And uh, the first person who really reaches out to me to try to love me and disciple me and teach me how to be a Christian, uh, that person uh, teaches me what is essentially a false gospel. They teach me the prosperity gospel, okay? And I was all in on the prosperity gospel because I thought that that's what Jesus wanted from me. And I just wanted to do what Jesus wanted me to do, right? So if Jesus wanted me to rebuke my ATM receipt, I was going to rebuke my ATM receipt. If, 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 if going to the doctor meant... Uh, not having faith? Well, shoot, I have faith, so I'm not going to the doctor, even if I have to get drug out of my own soup in the bathtub because I'm about to die from mercury poisoning. Different story. Come back and tell you about that some other time. Long story short, God was very kind to me over the course of several months and a couple of years to lead me out of the prosperity gospel and into a right understanding of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that was once delivered to the saints for all time. And the funny thing happened after I came out of the prosperity gospel, I was like, I was ferocious. I was, a, I was a bulldog. I was a pit bull about true doctrine, right doctrine. I wanted to make sure that all the stuff that I thought that I knew, that I found out to be wrong, I wanted to make sure this time that it was right. And it wasn't merely an intellectual exercise. It was because I realized that false doctrine hurts people. It hurts them temporarily, and it also hurts them eternally. It sends them to hell. So I cared a lot about doctrine. And as you know, if you know me, uh, I don't have much of an education, but I love to read. And, and so I read everything that I could read. I'm reading systematic theologies and old Puritan guys and new Puritan-esque guys. I'm spending all my time studying doctrine and theology. Man, it was a really sweet time in my life. I came to understand things about God and myself and the gospel that, that just blew my mind and that really are foundational for a lot of the things that we do together in the life of this church today. One of the things that I learned about during this time was biblical theology. If you're a member of this church and you've been in Sunday school class, uh, in our Sunday school classes, you've probably heard me talk about biblical theology. That's where we trace the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you know, and, and you, you understand the Bible as sort of a, a narrative, okay? And I was so excited about this new thing that I learned. It was blowing my mind. And I got invited to go uh, preach to a group of at-risk youths. And I thought, I'm going to talk about biblical theology. I'm going to paint the picture of the gospel in very dramatic fashion. I'm going to walk them through the story of the universe. And that's what I did. Now listen, it's never easy to talk to a group of at-risk youth, okay? No matter what, some guy up there talking to them about Jesus, they're just generally not interested in. But I thought that I did a pretty good job of putting together a very dramatic, compelling articulation of the gospel. And so for about 40 minutes, I held their attention. I mean, for the most part. And I walked them from Genesis all the way to Revelation giving them the most robust gospel presentation in my mind that perhaps had ever been given. Sorry, Peter, the day of Pentecost. I got you. I'm, I'm, I'm beating you on this one, okay? And uh, yeah, I was also about 22, 23, which means I knew everything, right? So very confident. And so after I got done, I prayed, you know, and then I sat down in my chair. And I was pretty proud of myself. Big pat on the back. Man, God. I wonder how many stadiums you're going to preach in when you get older, you know? Anyways, the guy who uh, ran the place went to a church that was probably not that healthy. I'd heard him say some things that I didn't think were particularly biblically accurate, 
but he was a good dude. I thought he was a Christian. He loved the Lord. He, he loved these kids. He was there giving his life to minister to these at-risk youths. And uh, he got up, and I could see on his face that he was, he was a little bothered. And I was like, huh, this guy doesn't like good theology, huh? And, oh, thank you, Sean. We appreciate you coming up and sharing your testimony and sharing about the story of the Bible. And, hey, we all need to make sure we're reading our Bible more. more and now I hope you can understand why. Uh, thank you, Sean. Um, but before we go today, I want to let you guys know that Jesus loves you. As soon as he said that, my heart broke in two. I realized that I was sitting here talking to a room full of kids who had never been loved in their lives. And all of that good theology that I just gave them, that big, beautiful, expansive gospel presentation that I had just given them, it was completely devoid of love. And I remember being that broken kid, that at-risk youth that had never been loved. And I remember what it felt like the first time somebody told me that Jesus loved me. And I couldn't believe that I robbed those kids of that deep, important gospel truth because I had all this theology in my head. I don't think that we as a church are unloving. I don't think that we forget about love. I think we would all say that love is important. Nevertheless, over the last several weeks, apart from one another, I have felt compelled uh, to bring us as a church back to consider the doctrine of love. To remind us as a church that every church is constantly in danger of losing love. And the way that you lose it is you don't say, oh, love doesn't matter. What usually ends up happening is that you begin to focus on a bunch of other things that are good, and then you begin to neglect love. That was certainly the case with the church at Corinth. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights in our Bible studies, as we walk through the book of Corinth, you see that the church there has a number of different issues. But one of the main issues that it has is that it's hyper-focused on spiritual gifts to the neglect of love. And so Paul, after he talks about spiritual gifts for a little bit, he comes back to them in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, and he reminds them that spiritual gifts without love is worthless. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I, might, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. You see that? Spiritual gifts, strong faith, extreme generosity, selflessness, suffering. None of these things matter if you don't have love. A man who is super spiritual but does not have love is in fact not spiritual at all. And the same thing is true, brothers and sisters, for the local church. I feel like we need to remind ourselves about the doctrine of God's love and what God demands of us in light of that love. Now, you'll notice one key word there. I said that we need to remind ourselves about love. I didn't say that we need to learn about the doctrine of love. 
I'm certain that everyone in this room basically understands that love is important and that we need to make sure that we are loving. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to relearn those truths. Another word for relearn is remember. The prolific English writer and moralist Samuel Johnson, he once quipped that, quote, men more frequently require to be reminded than informed, end quote. What he's, what he's saying is, yeah, most of the time you don't have to teach people something, you just have to remind them of something that they already knew. Now, this is true, but this sentiment is not entirely unique to Mr. Johnson. As a matter of fact, Mr. Johnson was a Christian, and he's probably, whether he realizes it or not, realizes it or not, in saying that just repeating what the Bible says on a number of different occasions. Jude begins his epistle with these words. Although you are fully aware of this, not partially, but fully aware of this, I want to remind you. Paul, in the third chapter of Philippians, says this. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. So Paul's like, I know it seems like I'm just wasting space on this letter. I've already talked about this, but I'm going to say it again because it doesn't cost me anything and it can only help you. Or consider this longer section from 2 Peter. Peter hits this point pretty heavy in a number of different ways. He says, so I will always remind you of these things. If you think that the last time I reminded you about these things was the last time I was going to remind you about these things, you're wrong. I'm always going to remind you about these things even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. There's no category for a Christian who's firmly established and is therefore no longer needed to be reminded of something. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. It seems like God's people just need to be constantly reminded of these important truths. Why? Because we are so quick to forget. You don't believe me? Just go back and read the Old Testament. Our church takes doctrine very seriously, and we should. Paul told Titus that the elders in the church must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He also said this to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. I couldn't write stronger words against bad doctrine, okay? There was a reason for young Sean, 22 years old, to be very concerned with doctrine. Bad doctrine is bad. But if we have doctrine in the life of this church, if our statement of faith is perfect, if everyone in this church can basically articulate how the Trinity works, if we can interact with, you know, our Mormon missionaries that come knocking on our door and, and show them where their theology is wrong. That's fantastic, but if we can do all of that and we don't have love, it is all worthless. And friends, you know the kind of people that I'm talking about. You've probably seen them on the internet or you've read about them in history. People who had all their doctrine worked out just right. Nevertheless, 
They had love, and so they had nothing. In this church, we take evangelism seriously, as we should. The last thing that Jesus did before he left was give us our marching orders. We are to take the name of Jesus Christ and proclaim it, the glories and excellencies of Christ to all the nations of the earth, calling men and women to repent and to be reconciled to God. Reminding them that they are loved by God, that they will be received by God, if only they will turn away from their sin. That is the reason why we exist. But if we go to the furthest jungles and the most faraway lands to preach the gospel, but we don't do it for love of God and love of the lost, we're not carrying out the Great Commission. I mean, you may say, Sean, well, that's a, that's a bit extreme. You, you say we're not carrying it out at all? Jesus told the Pharisees, you travel sea and land to make proselytes, but you just make them twice the sons of hell that you are. The Pharisees were very good at carrying out the commission. They wanted to go make converts, but they were making people converts of hell because they didn't have love. This church is very serious about being students of God's word and being obedient to what we find in Scripture. We try to practice things that so many churches just basically ignore. The easiest example of that would be church discipline. But discipline in the life of the church that doesn't flow from love is abuse. Discipline that does not flow from love is abuse. The only kind of discipline in the life of the church that is actually biblical church discipline is the kind that wants to protect the glory of the name of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the souls of the members of the church, and the souls of the unrepentant members of the church. Any other kind of discipline that's just some exercise of trying to protect the leadership's power in the life of the church, that's called abuse. Listen, you see where I'm going, right? I'm just kind of walking through all these things that are very important in the life of our church and just showing you how they're worthless if we as a church don't, don't do it in love. It's not uncommon to hear people say something like, love is all we need. Right? That's one of those things, you hear it, it's on a t-shirt, it's on a bumper sticker, it sounds good, it has to be right, it has to be true. But love is not all we need. Even as Christians. If we have everything that looks Christian, we have all the trappings of the faith, but we don't have love. We have a rocking missions program. We have a ladies' discipleship program. Titus 2, woo-woo. If we give all of our money away, you know, if we sell this building and go and have church in a parking garage because we want to support a church plant in Indonesia, you know, if, if we have all of that and we don't have love, this church is on the verge of losing its lampstand. Or perhaps it already has. On one of the many occasions when Jesus was being tested by the teachers of the law, he told them that all that God demands from us is to love God and to love our neighbor. And that's impossible. So we need the Lord's help. We need the Spirit's help if we're going to do this. And so that's why we're going to spend the next several weeks in God's Word. That's how the Spirit works. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God in the lives of the people of God. So we're going to spend the next several weeks together as a church considering this doctrine of love. Now, to be honest with you, in closing, uh, I'm a little nervous about this series. 
Uh, love is one of those things that seems like everyone would just love to spend a lot of time talking about. But actually, when you start spending a lot of time talking about lo- love, you find some tension, some friction arises. And I think that that's just because most of us have taken our cues, our understanding of what love is, from the culture, from the world, rather than God's word. Paul Washer once said, the quickest way to get fired as a pastor is to spend a year preaching on the doctrine of love. And the reason why is because love, true love, biblical love, is dangerous. It demands something of us. True love, biblical love, confronts us. It calls us to repentance. It exposes us and just how unloving we really are. But if the Spirit of God lives in us, brothers and sisters, as I'm confident that He does, then we will be helped by this next several weeks together considering the doctrine of love. So, in closing, let me just summarize, I think, everything that could be said about love from one verse in Scripture before we dive into a bunch of verses in the coming weeks. 1 John 4.16, it reads like this. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice to be